European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance, Volume 42, Issue 7, Focus Issue, Imaging, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Filippo Crea, read to you by Morgan Bryan. The new frontiers of imaging, from echocardiography to positron emission tomography, and also what happened in the last year in digital health and in imaging. The first article is from the Year in Cardiovascular Medicine series. In the Year in Cardiovascular Medicine 2020, Digital Health and Innovation, Shara Lambos Antoniades from the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom and colleagues note that advances in digital health, and particularly in artificial intelligence, or AI, have led us very close to the true implementation of personalised medicine. The introduction of AI in research, but also in clinical practice, is mainly driven by technological advances in the handling and analysis of big data. AI is referred to as the ability of a machine to execute tasks characteristic of human intelligence, such as problem-solving or pattern recognition, and is typically characterised by the element of positive or negative reinforcement as part of the learning process, similar to what typically happens with human learning. Unsupervised deep learning is used to build convolutional neural networks that recognise features in digital data not visible to the human eye. These data can be clinical information, images, electrocardiograms, or even standard selfies taken using smartphone cameras. The year 2020 has brought an exponential increase of studies using various forms of AI, from supervised machine learning to unsupervised deep learning with applications across all domains of cardiovascular medicine. AI is now moving from research to implementation, affecting all aspects of clinical cardiology. The studies bringing AI close to clinical practice span from fast clinical and biochemical data analysis and interpretation of results, to image analysis, electrocardiogram interpretation, arrhythmia detection, or even the use of face recognition to diagnose cardiovascular diseases. The authors review some of the most exciting developments in the field of AI in cardiology published in the last year. The studies highlighted in this article give only a small glimpse into this booming field, creating more anticipation for what will come to clinical practice in the coming years. The issue continues with a focus on imaging. In a special article, The Year in Cardiovascular Medicine 2020, Imaging, Jose Luis Zamorano from the University Hospital Ramon y Cajal in Madrid, Spain and colleagues note that the past year has been a unique one owing to the outbreak of COVID-19, which has affected the population worldwide with ensuing economic and social consequences. The field of cardiology has not escaped this reality, bringing with it changes in our everyday clinical praxis. The contribution of different imaging techniques to the cardiac involvement of COVID-19 with diagnostic and prognostic implications has been published very expeditiously. It is still pending to ascertain the long-term outcomes of the different degrees of cardiac injury. White matter hypertensities, or WMH, progress with age and hypertension, but the key period of exposure to elevated blood pressure and the relative role of systolic, or SBP, versus diastolic blood pressure, or DBP, remain unclear. In a clinical article, midlife blood pressure is associated with the severity of white matter hyperintensities, 
analysis of the UK Biobank cohort study. Karolina Wartolowska from the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom and colleagues aimed to determine the relationship between WMH and concurrent versus past blood pressure. UK Biobank is a prospective community-based cohort of 40 to 69-year-olds from 22 centres, with MRI imaging in a subgroup of over 40,000 people at 4 to 12 years after baseline assessment. Standardised association between WMH load, WMH volume normalised by total white matter volume and logit transformed, with concurrent versus past blood pressure, were determined using linear models adjusted for age, sex, cardiovascular risk factor, blood pressure source, assessment centre and time since baseline. WMH were associated with concurrent systolic blood pressure, but the strongest association was for past DBP, particularly under the age of 50. Any increase in blood pressure, even below 140 for systolic and below 90 millimeters of mercury for diastolic blood pressure, and especially if requiring antihypertensive medicine, was associated with increased WMH. The authors conclude that WMH are strongly associated with concurrent and past elevated BP. However, before the age of 50, DBP is more strongly associated with WMH. Long-term prevention of WMH may require control of even mildly elevated midlife DBP. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Franz Masserli from the University of Bern in Switzerland and colleagues. They raise the following issues. 1. The fact that an increase in past DBP and in concurrent SBP is associated with an increased WMH burden does not allow the inference that lowering such BP will lower WMH burden. 2. The effects of long-term exposure to elevated BP and or its treatment on target organ disease such as WMH burden may no longer be reversible even when normotension is achieved by antihypertensive therapy. Air pollution, i.e. particulate matter with a diameter of less than 2.5 micrometers, or PM2.5, is a risk factor for major adverse cardiovascular events, or MACE. While PM2.5 promotes leukopoiesis and atherosclerotic inflammation in experimental models, it is unknown whether it occurs in humans. In a clinical research article entitled A Leukopoietic Arterial Axis Underlying the Link Between Ambient Air Pollution and Cardiovascular Disease in Humans, Ahmed Tawakal from the Massachusetts General Hospital Department of Radiology in Boston, Massachusetts, USA, and colleagues tested in humans 1. Whether PM2.5 associates with higher leukopoietic tissue activity and arterial inflammation. 2 whether these associations persist after accounting for the effects of potential confounders including socioeconomics, traffic noise and risk factors. And three, whether these tissue effects mediate the association between air pollution and MACE. Individuals, N equaling 503, without CVD or active malignancy, underwent 18 F-fluorodeoxoglucose positron emission tomography. MACE was adjudicated over five years' follow-up. Leukopoietic tissue activity in bone marrow and spleen, as well as arterial inflammation, were measured. 
annual PM 2.5 levels were assessed at each individual's home address. At baseline, higher PM 2.5 associated with increased leukopoietic activity as well as arterial inflammation after adjusting for CVD risk factors. Over a median of 4.1 years, 40 individuals experienced MACE, PM 2.5 exposure associated with MACE remaining significant after adjustment for CVD risk factors and other potential confounders. Mediation analysis demonstrated that increased leukopoietic activity and arterial inflammation serially mediated the link between PM 2.5 exposure and MACE. Tawakal et al. conclude that higher air pollution exposure associates with heightened leukopoietic activity and arterial inflammation and independently predicts MACE through a biological pathway that includes higher leukopoietic activity and arterial inflammation in series. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Francois Marc from the Foundation for Medical Research in Geneva, Switzerland. In their commentary, the authors conclude that this study underscores the potential mechanisms underpinning the detrimental impact of air pollution on our health, as well as the urgent need for global-level strategies to reduce and prevent associated cardiovascular disease. Cardiac power is a measure of cardiac performance that incorporates both pressure and flow components. Prior studies have shown that cardiac power predicts outcomes in patients with reduced left ventricular, or LV, ejection fraction, or EF. In a clinical research article entitled, Prognostic Value of Peak Stress Cardiac Power in Patients with Normal Ejection Fraction Undergoing Exercise Stress Echocardiography, Vidu Anand from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, USA and colleagues sought to evaluate the prognostic significance of peak exercise cardiac power and power reserve in patients with normal EF. The authors performed a retrospective analysis in about 25,000 patients with EF greater than or equal to 50%, no significant valve disease or right ventricular or RV dysfunction, undergoing exercise stress echocardiography between 2004 and 2018. Cardiac power and power reserve, or developed power with stress, were normalized to LV mass and expressed in watts per 100 grams of LV myocardium. Endpoints at follow-up were all-cause mortality and diagnosis of heart failure. During the median follow-up of 3.9 years, 929 patients died. After adjusting for age, sex, metabolic equivalence or METs achieved, ischemia stroke infarction on stress test results, medication and comorbidities, peak stress power stroke mass was independently and significantly associated at follow-up with mortality, adjusted hazard ratio highest versus lowest quartile 0.5, and heart failure adjusted hazard ratio highest versus lowest quartile, 0.4. Power reserves showed similar results. Anand and colleagues conclude that the assessment of cardiac power during exercise stress echocardiography in patients with normal EF provides valuable prognostic information. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Otto Smizef from the Oslo Universitet Sikhus in Norway and colleagues. The authors conclude that this study offers convincing evidence that comprehensive assessment of LV function, including measurements during peak exercise, 
provide incremental prognostic information in patients with apparently normal LV and RV systolic function. There is still a need for further testing of the cardiac power method in prospective studies before it can potentially replace EF as a measure of LV systolic function. In a state-of-the-art review entitled Assessing Left Ventricular Systolic Function from Ejection Fraction to Strain Analysis Brian Halliday from the Imperial College in London, United Kingdom and colleagues note that measurement of left ventricular ejection fraction or LVEF is a ubiquitous component of imaging studies used to evaluate patients with cardiac conditions and acts as an arbiter for many management decisions. This follows early trials investigating heart failure therapies which used a binary LVEF cutoff to select patients with the worst prognosis who may gain the most benefit. 40 years on, the cardiac disease landscape has changed. LVEF is now a poor indicator of prognosis for many heart failure patients, specifically for the half of patients with heart failure and preserved ejection fraction, or HEFPEF. It is also recognised that LVEF may remain normal amongst patients with valvular heart disease who have significant myocardial dysfunction. Guidelines based on LVEF may therefore miss a proportion of patients who would benefit from early intervention to prevent further myocardial decompensation and future adverse outcomes. The assessment of myocardial strain or intrinsic deformation holds promise to improve these issues. The measurement of global longitudinal strain or GLS has consistently been shown to improve the risk stratification of patients with heart failure and identify patients with valvular heart disease who have myocardial decompensation despite preserved LVEF and an increased risk of adverse outcomes. To complete the integration of GLS into routine clinical practice, further studies are required to confirm that such approaches improve therapy selection and accordingly the outcomes for patients. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interest of its listeners.